Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. We're here today with Randy Stoker, who is professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Sociology at the University of Wisconsin, with a joint appointment in the Center for Community and Economic Development. He has written a lot of books, and my favorite is, I'll hold it up so he can see it on the video, is this one uh, that I recommend to everybody I know, um, Liberating Service Learning and the Rest of Higher Education Civic Engagement. Um, he's also written, um, and I wish I could say the same about my dissertation, uh, became a book called Defending Community, The Struggle for Alternative Development in Cedar Riverside. Um, which is a neighborhood in Minneapolis that I hope we'll talk about some today, um, published by Temple University Press in 1994. Um, other books include Research Methods for Community Change, a project-based approach, um, and uh, a book that I find very useful that he has written with Carrie Strand, Sam Marullo, and Nick Cutforth. Um, Community-Based Research in Higher Education, Principles and Practices. So welcome, Randy, to Nothing Never Happens. Thank you. It's great to be here, or there, as the case may be. <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, well, I well, wanted to start by uh, asking you to talk a little bit about your work with uh, the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis. That got you started in community-based research. But this is a, I tend to tell the story as a little bit longer than it probably should be. So just uh, tell me to speed up if you need me to. <laughs> um, I was just a graduate student at the University of Minnesota and happened to find a place to rent in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood way, way back in the 1980s. And, you know, then as I lived there, I was noticing that all this old rundown housing was all being fixed up. And then I also noticed that two blocks from me across Cedar Avenue were these enormous concrete high rise towers. And the juxtaposition of those two things so, a, a bunch of single family homes that were falling down and these like ugly concrete high rises intrigued me. Uh, I had learned that there was a neighborhood organization I could go find out what the story was for all this. And I also happened to be taking a class in qualitative research methods at the same time. I figured, well, I could do my interview assignment for that in my neighborhood. So I show up at the neighborhood organization office and there's this guy sitting behind the desk with ponytail, blue jeans, work shirt. And, and this is an office surplus desk next to an office surplus filing cabinet. And I ask him if I can interview him. And he looks at me. He says, you know, we got students coming through here all the time. They all want to interview me. They all want to take my time. And I never get so much as a copy of a paperback from them. <laughs> so if I let you interview me, I want a copy of what you write. Okay. And I was like looking for the exits. I mean, this is like <laughs> unexpected. Um, but I was so intimidated. I would, 
just felt nailed to the floor. So I said, sure, sure, of course. And then he politely answered all of my questions. And I went away and I wrote up my short little paper and I came back. It was a week or 10 days later, whenever it was. And I handed it to him. And, and I had been thinking about why was this guy so mad? And, and was he mad at me? Was mm -hmm. he mad at what I represented? And so I was feeling collective guilt. And I looked at him and I said, is there anything else I can do? And Tim Lundevin got a twinkle in his eye and he pointed to the corner of his office. He said, you see that door? That door leads to a hallway and that hallway is our fire exit. The problem is it's filled with junk and you can't get through it. The fire marshal was here a couple of weeks ago and he said, we got to clean that up. Could you clean that up for us? And I started thinking to myself, I'm a PhD student. I don't clean hallways. But again, I was still totally intimidated. And so all I could do was nod my head and say, sure, oh, of course, of course. So I open up the door. And sure enough, there's a hallway at probably six to eight feet. And you know, those old filing, cardboard filing boxes that people use when they can't afford two surplus filing cabinets, but only one. Well, there was about six stacks of those, uh, about as tall as me, except that they'd all fallen over. And so indeed, you could not get through that hallway. And so I tipped the first box back upright, and I started putting stuff into it. And I noticed what I was putting into it was old neighborhood newspapers. Grabbed the next box. The next box was filled with correspondence between lawyers and government officials and neighborhood activists. And Tim knew that if I took the bait, I would discover that, in fact, I didn't need to interview him. All my answers were right there. I, and by the time I'd finished cleaning up that hallway, I had all of my dissertation data exactly where I wanted it. And I had a relationship with that neighborhood that still continues to this day with some of the individuals involved. And that was over three decades ago. Mm, wonderful. Wow. So I, um, I love this story and I want to know what happened next. How did, how did you go from hallway and reading newspapers to solidifying this relationship that's lasted so long? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a relationship that grew uh, as I became really intrigued because as I started to learn the story of the neighborhood, you know, this was a neighborhood that was literally going to be wiped off the map. Those high rises that I told you about, there were supposed to be 10 stages of them, and that was just the first stage. Mm -hmm. But the neighborhood organized and fought back, and they fought back so successfully that the city literally gave them the neighborhood to redevelop as they saw fit. Wow. And so now it's a neighborhood of co-ops, of housing co-ops. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they had done this really intriguing thing that I wanted to understand. Plus, I was just drawn to alternatives like that. And, and they had also taught me 
that as a scholar, it was possible to have a different kind of relationship with a group of people that I was trying to understand than as a detached, objective, um, and potentially because of that inaccurate observer of what was going on. And instead, by working with them in collab, because they read everything that I wrote and they commented on everything that I wrote, uh, sometimes mercilessly and good for them. And by the time I had finished my dissertation and then later the book, you know, it had been vetted and reviewed by my neighborhood peers just so many times I can't even count. And it's to this day still one of my proudest pieces of work as a mm -hmm. consequence. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, well, one of the threads that I've seen in, in that book and in, in the rest of your work that connects with what we're trying to do here uh, with the podcast is connection with the Highlander Center. Um, and um, especially in terms of your work, John Gaventa and participatory action research and the work he did with Miles Horton and the work he did in the sociology department at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, so, you know, the sort of the theoretical thread, uh, threads of Marx and Dewey and, and Freire and um, of course, Horton and, and Gaventa and, and others who are doing social change, um, not only the Highlander Center, but our friends here in Atlanta, Project South. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Midwest Academy, we could go on and on, but um, those kinds of organizations um, the, and the theory that they're doing uh, through the revolution will not be funded and et cetera. Um, could you talk more about your, you know, the importance of these theoretical links and these, and these community change organizations from, you know, Highlander, Project South, People's Institute and others that influence your work? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you kind of frame it as theory, and I'm, mm. and I'm not sure I would. I'm also not mm. sure I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, in some ways, it's more, for me, a kind of meta theory. Mm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not a, those groups don't necessarily have an explanation for how the world works, but they have a way of learning how the world works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I mean, Highlander, which I know the most about, um, especially historically, has very much had a process orientation. And, and it has been the process of people coming to know their own circumstances. Mm -hmm. And you know, so if you also throw Paulo Freire in the mix, you know, then you know, we're talking about a process of conscientization. Yeah. And this process of people coming to be conscious in an organic intellectual way of their mm -hmm. life circumstances and how it connects with broader stuff going on. So with how the economy works, how the political system works, mm -hmm. that 
they are going to see working in a particular way because of their particular place yeah. in reality that is going to look and feel and act differently from the way it works in my reality. Mm -hmm. And so that's the really cool thing is the process of theorization yeah. that goes on with those groups. And, and so theory consequently is now in the hands of the people doing the action mm -hmm. rather than in a kind of a vanguardist academic um, who is telling people what to think mm -hmm. rather than contributing to their process of them thinking themselves. Yeah, so popular education models. Yes. Uh, for social change, yeah. Um, Randy, could you talk a little bit more about how this orientation towards what education is and what theory is has mapped onto some of your experiences working inside of the university? And I'm particularly interested in um, the ways that you are really bringing community-based research um, to the center of an ethical practice within the field of sociology. How has that gone over? Um, what progress have you seen? What do you think are the areas that are still difficult? That's yeah, an interesting question and I'm not sure that I would, I would describe myself as bringing it to the center. Um, it still feels like it's pretty much on the margin mm. and and that I think is simply the way that it is and the way that it's going to be because uh, I mean, higher education institutions simply are not designed for the kind of work that Highlander does or Project South does. Uh, and, you know, I just happen to have a really fortunate position because I have an extension position as well as a UW Madison regular academic position. And so, you know, I am supposed to be off campus and I'm supposed to be building the knowledge capacity of various groups out in the real world of Wisconsin. And that makes it easy for me, but positions like mine are really, really unique and rare. And so, I mean, I yeah, I, I don't think it has changed curriculum. I don't think it has transformed the institution. I mean, you know, the University of Wisconsin does have this thing called the Wisconsin Idea. And I mean, every institution that says it wants to be community engaged has developed programs and developed courses and developed centers. And the, the question, I think, still is the extent to which we are focusing our efforts on building the knowledge power of people off campus rather than simply providing services, even if they're knowledge services to people off campus. And, and, and so that's where I'm not, I'm not sure the question quite 
fits from my experience? A better way to say it is putting it at the center of your work. Mm. And what change are you trying to sort of incite in the fields that you're navigating? Yeah, thanks. Um, that helps. And, and mostly I'm, I have kept for the past three decades Tim Mungevin's voice in my head and trying to do things so that voice won't yell at me. <laughs> and so it has really been about how do I contribute to people who are working on making a better world. I mean, one of the most interesting things lately is I have been working, we're actually in our fourth year of working with a network of hip hop artists and their allies here in Madison, trying to reduce discrimination against the genre here in the city. And, you know, when we started, you would be hard pressed to find anyone more ignorant about hip hop than I was. Mm. But I had a relationship with one of the leaders in the group through another project that we had done. I, and she thought that I could actually be useful. I, and, you know, I expressed some concern about, well, I don't know anything about hip hop. And Karen said, well, Randy, you don't have to worry about that. We know about hip hop. <laughs> and so what we need is somebody who knows about research and that's you. And, and it was really helpful and it's been really helpful ever since because with this group and with the projects we've been doing, there's like no possible way I can pretend I'm the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, it's really helped me to think about who am I when I'm working with a group that's focused on change and what is my role and what isn't my role. Mm -hmm. so I, I don't go off talking about hip hop to anybody out there. Mm -hmm. I, you know, what we do is the background support research mm -hmm. so that in the groups called the Urban Community Arts Network, you can, so that you can, can go out and lead the way to ending hip hop discrimination in the city. Yeah, yeah. So let, I want to turn attention to your students in the classroom. Um, you just presented a paper I saw at ASA, um, uh, American Sociological Association, uh, called Bringing Community Organizing Training to the College Classroom. Uh, I have found really helpful and indicting and challenging uh, a lot of what you say about the, the pitfalls of that and how um, a lot of, uh, especially um, higher education models, you know, get it wrong, but also individual professors who send their students out without any um, personal involvement, uh, relying on institutions out in the world to uh, supervise them uh, with little reflection and uh, no connection with community change with the with the participants. 
Um, so could you talk about your classroom practices? I've read a few of your syllabi, which are, um, I like the way you set those up as, as with students in process at the beginning. Um, so could you talk about that? Because uh, I think you, you're doing some really interesting um, work in the classroom. Well, well interestingly enough, the, that presentation that you cite Mm -hmm. was part of a panel of folks who to talk about this kind of stuff should actually be here rather than me. Um, Scott Myers Lipton, oh, yeah. for example, is incredible in what he does with students. Mm -hmm. And I was actually kind of the, I didn't fit quite in that panel because this was a panel of people who were sending their students out to do community organizing around issues. Hmm. And I actually don't do that. Uh, I do teach a community organizing class uh, and we do a lot of training. I use a lot of the old ACORN training materials, mm -hmm. some of the IAF and Gamaliel training materials, um, but it's all inside the classroom because I don't think personally that students should be out organizing people until mm -hmm. after they've had extensive training. Mm -hmm. And so this course is to prep them to maybe be able to apprentice with good organizers. Mm -hmm. And so the, the course I actually teach isn't community engaged at all. Mm -hmm. Instead, the model that I use is that, you know, what we hopefully do the best at with our students is training them and teaching them in how to do good research. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm working with a group, that's what we're doing is we're providing research yeah. support. Yeah. And I have the incredible honor of being able to teach one of our department capstone sections. And the cool thing about a capstone course is it doesn't come with its content already determined. Mm -hmm. So you can put content into it. And so I can do the entire capstone course around a community-based research project. Mm -hmm. And that means we can devote all of our efforts to the research from the first day of class through to the last day of class. Mm -hmm. right? And that feels good to me because we can actually accomplish substantial stuff. Mm -hmm. So the first project we did with UCAN, for example, uh, was they were concerned about kind of stereotypes of hip hop as a violent genre and as attracting and causing violence. And that's one of the reasons that a lot of promoters and bar owners won't book hip hop acts. And you can want an actual data on this. And so we got a hold of eight years of data from the police department for all the calls for service to all the bars with entertainment licenses in the city of Madison. And then the capstone students that I am, to this day, I am absolutely in awe of those capstone students. 
we whittled it down to about 4,000 calls. And for each one of those calls, the students went out and searched to see whether there was a performance at that bar at the time of that call and then figure out what the genre was. It took collectively hundreds of hours. You know, and so compared to the average, like, you know, 20, 25 hour service learning gig, um, this yeah. is, you know, dozens of times greater than that. Uh, you know, and we ended up with a data set and we did the analysis on it that showed that, in fact, live hip hop wasn't any more likely than country wasn't any more likely than heavy metal, wasn't any more likely than karaoke to produce violence and to attract police calls. Uh, and we even, I mean, interestingly enough, this is the first group I've ever worked with that actually wanted to publish this data in a peer reviewed journal because they thought it would give it even more legitimacy, um, which, uh, that just blew my mind uh, that they would want to do that. And so we did it. Uh, and, you know, that's the kind of work that a class that's completely devoted to the project can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, did they uh, continue the work after the class? I think you mentioned a few projects where the, where the students kept going after the semester. Yeah, that project um, went into a second semester. I got uh, a number of the students to be able to sign up for independent study because we just had more to do. We realized we could go deeper and we could do more. Uh, and that's actually happened the last three years and that those projects have extended. Uh, and, you know, that's been okay because, I, you know, again, with me, my privilege is that I have an extension position in addition to my professor position, which allows me the space to do more quote unquote teaching, but it's actually more extension work. Do, 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 do.